The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. spend a significant amount of time trying to hear from God and uh, asking Him to guide me in what it is that I should share with you as we study God's Word together. And each week, to the best of my ability, um, I bring to you what I believe God lays on my heart. And many times, uh, you come and say, man, that was just for me, or I, re- I needed that, or uh, man, you're preaching just to me, or that was the word that I needed. And I love that miracle that happens where God takes His Word by His Holy Spirit and He individualizes it to each one of us. That being said, this week I had a greater sense than usual that many of you need this Word out of Hebrews chapter 12. Just a a great sense of the presence of God saying to me that this word this morning out of Hebrews chapter 12 for for some of you could be a life-changing word in terms of how you understand your relationship with God. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. What's uh, happened here is that the writer of Hebrews has been using Old Testament quotations and illustrations to prove his point that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. That the Old Covenant was a symbol or a shadow of the reality of things to come, which are all found in Jesus. And so he uses all of these illustrations. He uses Abraham and Moses. He uses Noah. He he uses Melchizedek and the Aaronic priesthood. He goes through all of these things to make that case. But when he comes to chapter 12, there's only two chapters left, 12 and 13. When he comes to these last two chapters, he's no longer talking about the old covenant. He's no longer talking about Moses and Abraham. He's talking about you. He's talking about you, and he's talking about me. And and what he's really describing here is that all of those in the Old Testament, all of those since the Old Testament who have died and gone to heaven, have now passed from the, the stage of time, and they make up, it says in, in chapter 12, verse 1, a great cloud of witnesses which fill up the stadium seats around us. And now is our time. This is the time when you and I are alive and on planet Earth, and we are now called to run our race. And so he uses this this metaphor that you and I are in a race of of faith. Moses is no longer alive. Abraham is no longer alive. You and I are alive, and it's our time to run that race. And last week, we looked at race running basics. That is, you, you, you you don't wear a lot of extra weight. You you strip down to that thin pair of shorts and shirt and a fast pair of shoes. And, uh, and, and you try not to trip. You want to run 
a clean race. And if you do trip and fall, you get back up and you finish the race strong. And that's how he started in verses 1 and 2. But every single one of us know that true athletes, and even if, even if you've never really competed in athlete and athletics isn't your thing, you know this by watching the Olympics. You know this by, uh, by watching uh, athletes who compete at a high level. You don't, just, you don't just walk out and race and win. There is a, there is a training regiment involved, and athletes who compete for a gold medal, athletes who compete for a, a Super Bowl trophy, athletes who compete uh, to win the World Series, athletes at the highest level train and discipline themselves so that they might run that race to the very best of their ability. And so, in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, we come to a passage which speaks about the discipline of the Lord. But here's what is important for you to get. This is what maybe some of you are needing to hear this morning. This passage is not really about discipline. If you just read it, you'd be like, oh, it's about discipline. Discipline is used nine times in this passage, more than any other word. But the passage is really about the love that the Heavenly Father has for us, and because He loves us, He disciplines us. This is the, this is the one motivation for running the race that far exceeds all the others. Have you, uh, you don't have to raise your hand to answer this, but have you ever tried to run your, your, your race of faith with your relationship with God, and it's kind of it's all built on guilt? Have you, ever, have you ever felt so guilty about what you did, and you feel so shamed about your sin, that you say, God, I'll, I will never do that again, and I, I don't want to feel that again. And so you, you're running your race to overcome your past guilt and not to feel future guilt. That doesn't work very well, does it? The thing about it is, even then when you're trying to not experience the guilt, you're thinking about the past guilt, and you don't want to experience the future guilt, and it, it's not a very good motivation for running the race. It doesn't really win the race for you. Maybe your faith race and your relationship with God has been built more around duty and honor and obligation. You're, you're running the race just out of duty and honor. You, you, uh, it's, like a, it's like a spiritual boot camp. And uh, you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. And daggone it, I'm going to get it done. But along the way, you'll discover that that kind of dries up and withers along the way. The only real motivation for winning in life and running the race and winning the race is love. Have you discovered this in your own relationships? When your relationships function out of love, you serve, you put others first, you humble yourself, you win over pride, you bless others, you go out of your way. That changes the relationship. If, if marriage relationships are only kept together out of duty, they're not very good relationships. If you only work at your job out of guilt, if, you're, if you just do something for a guy because, oh, he helped me last time, i got to help him this time, oh, I hate that. It's not a very good friendship. 
And so love is that thing. Now, here's what I want you to understand about the love of God. God doesn't love us because we're so lovable. We, we sometimes function like, well, we loved God, and we cared about the things of God, and so God, responding to our love, sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. That is not how the story goes. In fact, the Scripture says we chose ourselves. We were selfish, self-seeking, self-centered. We chose sin and wrong when we knew it wasn't right and it wouldn't help us at all. In effect, we were shaking our fists at God, serving ourselves and our own idols, and while we were the enemies of God, God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And the scripture says we only love him because he first loved us. Have you ever thought about this? I don't know if you've ever given this any thought. When Adam and Eve sinned, if, we, if they'd have sinned and then they had Cain and Abel and then they had their children, they had their children, and if, if, if we all just lived in this world uh, as the uh, objects of sin and we were, we were the victims and the purveyors of sin and then we died at the end of this experience and spent eternity separated from God, if God had never provided a plan of salvation for us, he would still be righteous and holy and perfect. Have you ever thought about that? He didn't have to make a way of salvation for us. He was still righteous and holy and perfect, even if he didn't send Jesus. But he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. And if you understand that the essence of your relationship with God is a love relationship, it changes forever the discussion of discipline in running the faith race. So let's do this discussion together. I want you to look at uh, beginning in verse 3. Remember he says, uh, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the coach. He's the designer of the, of the racetrack. He's the one who holds the all-time record. He says, uh, let, set aside the weight. Uh, uh, Set aside the sin that would trip you up. And in verse, 30, uh, verse 3, still talking about Jesus, he says, think about him. Consider him. He's the one who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that it's really beyond belief. And he, and he goes on and says, so think about Jesus so that you won't grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so here he gives encouragement. Now, in modern America, with so much prosperity, we go, this is encouragement? You, you, haven't, you haven't run the race to the place where you've had to give your life as a martyr? Wow, thanks for that encouragement. But in the first century, that was real encouragement. There were people who were actually giving their lives for their faith, martyred by Nero and the emperors and many others who would turn against them. Some of them stoned to death by the Jews themselves, like Stephen. And so he says, That's, your faith hasn't called for your ultimate sacrifice yet. And he, he says, look at Jesus. Jesus gave himself as an ultimate sacrifice. So as you're going to do this, be reminded that God in his love has provided a model for running the race. Jesus Christ went to the cross for us. He is our atonement. He's our Savior. He is our our salvation. But more than that, He is a model 
for running this race. And in this race, we discover that there are times when we want to quit. There are times in this life when we just want to pack it in. There was a time when Moses said, God, I don't want these people. I don't want to lead them. Get somebody else to do this. There was a time when Elijah said, I am not your prophet, Lord. You need to call a new prophet. I've been doing this, and I don't have any converts at all. Got to be a better guy than me. The Bible is full of guys who loved God and wanted to quit. And so here in this passage, we, we see some things that cause us to want to quit. Look, look at what he says about Jesus. He says he endured hostility. You know what hostility is? Hostility is not that somebody's just mad at you. Hostility is that somebody hates you for a reason that you can't change. Maybe they hate you for the color of your skin. Maybe they hate you for your gender. Maybe they hate you for some of your life choices. But they hate you and they are hostile towards you. The scripture says the world hated Jesus not just hostility, but he talks about weariness. He says, don't be weary and don't be faint-hearted. There are times when we want to quit because we are bone-tired. Has the alarm ever gone off in your life on a Monday morning and you cannot believe it? You just laid your head on the pillow and you you start your day tired and you go through the whole day and you are just exhausted and you, and you can't wait to get through the day so you can get home and rest, only discover there's no rest when you get home? I mean, there's some days when we just are exhausted in life and we want to quit. And then the Bible talks about this as a struggle. He says uh, the, Jesus experienced hostility. He, he, don't grow weary. Don't be faint-hearted. Verse 4, in your struggle... Sometimes we need to be reminded as Americans because we have so much prosperity. This isn't heaven. This isn't the final destination. We live in a depraved world. We live, we live in a world that needs salt and light. And it's a struggle in this world. If you want to be a part of bringing Jesus to a world that doesn't really want Jesus, there is a struggle involved with that. And so that's a part of this world too. And sometimes in the struggle, we just want to quit because the world is, here's the last word, resistant to us. And so here are uh, descriptors of the world that we live in and in elements of the race that we have to run, and it causes us to want to quit. And so we're told here, look at Jesus. God in his love, the heavenly Father in his love for us, has provided a model so that we know how to run this race. He also really says to us that one of our problems is that we get the hostility and the resistance and the exhaustion and the struggle mixed up with God's discipline. And so we sometimes find ourselves working against the world, and then because we get the elements of the world mixed up with what God is doing, we actually find ourselves working against God. So this morning, I, I want to help you. Don't get the, histo- the hostility of the world mixed up with the discipline of the Lord. You say, well, uh, how do you do that? Because sometimes the events in our life are events that are difficult. How do we know if they're from Satan to discourage us or from the Lord to discipline us? And, and the answer is really simple. 
if you're, if you're going in the right direction, doing the right things, and this difficult thing comes, it's from Satan to discourage you, to keep you from going in the right direction. You're already going in the right direction. He wants to turn you around. But if you're going in the wrong direction, imagine, you know, it's the race. Everybody gets down on the blocks. The gun goes off. And everybody takes off, right? But you go this way. You're, you're going the wrong way. So if there's a hurdle or a struggle, and you're fighting to go the wrong way, God is the one working in your life to turn you around so you'll go the right way. If you're going the right way and there's a struggle, that's Satan. He doesn't want you to go the right way. If you're going the wrong way and there's a struggle, that's God because he doesn't want you to go the wrong way. Does that make sense? But sometimes we get those a little mixed up. Um, Let's stop just for a second. Let me tell you how uh, God uses the word discipline in his word. There are at least uh, three ways in which he uses the word discipline. And, uh, and when he uses that in, in his word, sometimes he uses the word discipline to mean training. Uh, an athlete trains. And so training, in a spiritual sense, is learning what's right and wrong. Uh, none of us come out of the womb ready to do everything right all the time. The Bible says we actually come out of the womb speaking lies. We come out of the womb with a depraved heart. And so we naturally do wrong. We have to be trained to do right. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 talks about that we're trained, so God gives us a sense of discernment as we grow spiritually to detect what's right and wrong. It's why you need somebody in your life who's more mature than you more spiritual than you, so that when you bump up into something and you're uncertain of what it is, you can get godly counsel that says to you, that looks like the wrong way to me. This looks like the right way to me. This is what God's calling you to do. And if they love God and they love his word and they know God and they can hear his word, they can be great sounding boards for you as you are trained in righteousness. That's, that's one definition for discipline. The second definition for discipline that we find in the Bible has to do with control. Often it's self-control or self-discipline. And it means surrendering, uh, I can't say it, present pleasure. That's a tongue twister. I was going to say pleasant pressure. It's surrendering present pleasure for a greater future benefit. And this is the process of denying yourself something now for something greater later on. And it has to do with self-control. Now, the idea of this, as you parent, for instance, let's think about our kids. We want our kids to come to the place where they are self-controlled. And so we give them opportunities to do that. But when they are not self-controlled, then we control them. When they are not self-disciplined, we discipline them. And God does the same thing. He does the same thing in our lives. When we, when we choose not to be self-disciplined, then he has to intervene in that disciplinary process. And that brings us to the third definition of the word discipline that we find in the Bible. And that third definition is chastisement. Chastisement, the best way I've ever found to uh, explaining this so that people get it, is a spiritual spanking to get your attention. Now, the, God doesn't spank you because he likes to spank you. God doesn't spank you because he loves hurting you. He's He's trying to stop you from destroying yourself. 
you're going the wrong way. You're headed to destruction. It's not going to end well for you. And out of his love for you, the passage is all about the love of God. Out of his love for you, he intervenes to chastise you. Now, here's what the scriptures say. We stopped reading a while ago in verse 4. Let's pick up in verse 5. It says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, the writer of Hebrews always quotes from the Old Testament, so he does it again. And he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Here's a verse to underline in your Bible. For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. Literally, whoever the Lord loves, that's the one that he disciplines. The second half of verse 6 is, he chastises every son, every child whom he receives. Here's what I want you to see and understand. This is what's so important in this passage. The Lord's discipline in our lives is actually the evidence that you are his child and that he loves you. If you've never been disciplined by the Lord, you need to look hard at your salvation experience. It's possible that you're not really saved because when you belong to the Lord and you become his child, then he treats you differently than the world. Romans chapter 1 tells us how he treats the world. They reject him. They go their own way. They're destroying their own lives, and he lets them go. If they don't want to respond to his love, they, they get what they deserve in the punishment of their sin. But Hebrews chapter 12 tells us a different story about those of us who are the children of God. When we start to go the wrong way, we belong to him. We're his children. He treats us differently. In Romans chapter 1, they get a judge. In Hebrews chapter 12, we get a loving father. And a loving father intervenes in our lives to discipline us because he loves us. Here's the metaphor beginning in verse 7. He says, it's for discipline then that you have to endure. God is treating you as his children. The, the, ver, the word there says sons, but ladies, it's generic. It's sons and daughters. It's the, it's the concept that we're the children of God. So, so what child is there whom the father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in, in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children. You don't belong to God. You're not his sons and daughters. The writer of Hebrews 2,000 years ago could never have fathomed a time like we live in in which parents would not discipline their children. it's, It's an impossibility for him to consider it. He said, if you're not disciplined, you're illegitimate. You don't really belong to them. They don't care about you. If they care about you and they love you, they will discipline you. He continues in this metaphor then, and he says in verse 9, besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God, our Heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, 
it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, now that we know this passage is about love, now that we know that God loves us with an everlasting love, he didn't have to send Jesus, but he did. He didn't didn't respond to our love. We only respond to his love. When he takes us into his family and we become the children of God, that love means then that when it's necessary, he disciplines us. So let's take the remainder of our time together and consider the characteristics of our Father's love and discipline. What does that look like? We don't have to leave the we don't have to leave Romans chapter 12. We're going to find them all right here in verses 9, 10, and 11. The first thing we see in verse 9 is that the Father's love and discipline is perfect, not earthly. It says it says in verse 9 we all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So um, here's the thing about our earthly parents. Our earthly parents uh, disciplined us, and even, uh, even when they were well-meaning, I'm not talking about abusive parents or mean-spirited parents or parents that should go to jail for the way they treat their kids. I'm talking about well-meaning parents. Even those of us who had well-meaning parents, they made mistakes with us, right? Right? How many of you, let's just do this for fun. I did this last hour. How many of you ever got a spanking for something that your brothers or sisters did and you got the spanking? It happened to me all the time. See, we just, we recognize that our parents, who even though they loved us, messed up with us sometimes along the way. Some of us are still seeing therapy because of those well-meaning parents who messed up. But here's what I want you to understand about the Heavenly Father. The Heavenly Father has never, even on one occasion, ever messed up with you. In fact, everything that He's ever done to you, with you, or for you has been perfect for you. His love and his discipline for you is always perfect. You never got a spiritual spanking that your neighbor was supposed to get. You, God never d- did something to you that you said, oh, you messed up, God. I didn't deserve that. His relationship with you, a love relationship that's unfailing, unbending, unconditional, his love that is new and fresh every morning has always been perfect. Now, I want you to think about your life. There's some things you're like, well, I didn't like God did this, and I didn't like God did this. Now, now you can think, oh, I better start looking at those things with different eyes because God's love and discipline toward me and with me has always been perfect. There's something else that we see here. We find it in the title of who God is. He's the father of spirits, and if we're subject to him, we will live. Now, this doesn't mean live eternal life, because he's already talking to us as the children of God. This passage is for believers. It's not unbelievers. We already have eternal life. So he's talking about abundant life. The goal of God's love and discipline in our lives is that we might have abundant life. God wants you to have meaning. God wants you to have purpose. God wants you to have joy. God wants you to have uh, an experience love. 
God wants you to have the peace that passes all understanding. God wants you to have self-control. God wants you to have all of the fruit of the Spirit. He wants you to have an abundant life. So many of us live the Christian life thinking it's struggle, it's hostility. Remember those words that we had a while ago? It's resistance, it's difficulty. And we just treat ourselves like we're just a few left in the Alamo and Satan's just about to hope Jesus comes before Satan gets us. And we go through our Christian lives like, hey, brother, how are you? Hi, sister. Hallelujah. It's Sunday. (sighs) God didn't intend that for us. When God's at work in your life, motivated by his love, when God's at work in your life, it's to bring you power. It's to bring you joy. It's to bring you purpose. It's to bring you direction. It's to bring you fulfillment. We live in a dark world. We live in a depraved world. But we're to be light in a dark world. So the people would look at our lives and go, wow, you're really different. The biggest problem with our evangelism as the people of God is that the world looks at us and we don't look any different than them, so why should they be like us? But if they look at our lives and we are different because we have this abundant life, then they will want what we have. In the very next verse, he says that uh, the verse 10 Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time is what seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So here's the next characteristic about the love and discipline of God. It's for our good and our eventual holiness. Let me see if I can help you get this. The blessing of God comes with holiness. Maybe it's easier to understand when I say it the wrong way. The blessing of God doesn't come because of our unholiness. Are you, are you with me? You don't, you don't get to turn your back on God, choose sin, choose unrighteousness, choose uh, perversity and corruption, and get the blessing of God. So God disciplines us and moves us toward holiness and Christ-likeness, and that's how he designed you. So that's for your good. God wants what's best for you. He designed you. He knows why he designed you. He knows what's best for you. And he's done that to help you. And so what's good for you is to move towards holiness. If in your Christian life you are not moving towards Christ-likeness and holiness, then you're going to experience more of the discipline of God because he's relentless in this. God doesn't go, oh, well, I got that one black sheep, that one troubled kid. I can't do anything with him. Oh, well. No, no. He always wins. He won't give up. The question is, how many spankings is it going to get to get you there? And that's what he's doing in your life. Because he hates you? Because holiness is more important than you? No, because he loves you and he designed you for holiness. Here's one of those moments where God's word is truth and truth is always honest. So what do we read in that honesty? Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. So one of the characteristics of the discipline of God is that it's painful. But just for a moment. Now, uh, here's our struggle. We think of our faith as being like a reservoir of water. 
and you only have so much water, and every time you have to use some of that faith, that water, it's let out by the dam. And then, so through your life, the, m- the more you have to use, it goes down and down and down because you could run out of it. That's the way we think of faith. Faith isn't a reservoir of water. Faith is a muscle. And how does a muscle work? The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Now, if you're going to build a muscle, what does it demand? It demands that you lift some weight that seems a little beyond your ability. This is so, so simple to illustrate. You have personal trainers in the health clubs that you're a part of who have actually said to you, I don't even know if your personal trainers are believers. I don't know if they're Christians. But there's a part of biblical truth that they understand. They have said to you, no pain, no, and you all know it. Now, how is it that you all know that and you can apply it to your workout in the gym, but not to your spiritual well-being? So discipline is painful, but notice this, just for a moment, just to build your faith so that the next go-around, the next race, the next time that Satan comes to tempt you or confront you, you have greater faith to win that battle, to overcome that struggle, to overcome the resistance. That's why God does that. And then we read in the end of verse 11, even though it's painful for the moment and not pleasant, (coughs) later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The word yield is a farmer's word. It's It's not an athlete's word. It's not a racer's word. It's a farmer's word. You, you sow the seed, you plant the crop, but you don't get anything at that moment. There's all the, there's all the work and the sweat and, the, and maybe the pain of doing that, but you don't get anything. The harvest comes later. And so in God's discipline, there's a momentary pain, but later it yields, and it yields two things that you really need. It yields peace and righteousness to those who receive it. You know, after God's love, these are the two things that we need the most. God didn't design you for conflict. He didn't design you for adversity. He didn't design you for tension and stress. You're not made that way. That's why your heart will give out if you have too much of it. You weren't designed to have that. You were designed to live in perfect unity and harmony with the Father of lights, the Father who loves you. You were designed to live in that, and you were designed to do it perfectly. And you can't do that without righteousness. You can't do it without being perfect. And so what does he do? He gives you the righteousness of Jesus. He makes you perfect so that you become the son or the daughter of God. And then you're in the family. And once you're in the family, the Heavenly Father who loves you with a perfect love will discipline you so that you can grow and be the one that he designed you to be, that you can experience all that he has for you. So the passage mentions the word discipline nine times, but the passage is about love. And this morning, in my spirit, my feeling is that some of you this morning needed to know this 
because now you need to receive the love that God has for you. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Is it possible that you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? That's where it all begins. You're not in the family of God. You're not a child of God until you have received Jesus Christ's, Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice for your sin. But once you become a part of the family of God, then God begins to exercise his love in your life. But I wonder, as Christ has disciplined you, is it possible that you're resisting the discipline of God? And by resisting the discipline of God, you're resisting the love of God. And maybe the thing you need to realize this morning is that God loves you with an everlasting love. And what he has for you is perfect. It's best for you. And it's time for you to receive, to embrace the discipline of the Father. Maybe for many of us, we're just running the wrong way on this racetrack. And what God's done this morning is just said, hey, stop, turn around, and run toward me. There's so many ways in which the Holy Spirit may be applying this to your heart and life right now. But I wonder if you've heard it. I wonder if you know it. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. How many of you would just say, Paul, pray for me. I've been resisting the discipline of God. You just lift your hand up and you can put it right back down. Yes, yes, yes. All over the room. How many of you would say, Paul, I pray for me. I think I've just put together that God disciplines me because he loves me. And you just lift your hand and say, I'm just figuring that out. Yeah, yeah, God bless you. So many of us. How many of you would raise your hand and say, Paul, I want to receive all of the love that God has for me because I know it's perfect. And you'd raise your hand. Father, this morning you've seen our hands, but more importantly, you know our hearts. You know everything about us. And as a perfect heavenly father, you love us as your children. And so this morning, we want to receive all the love that you have for us, even when it means discipline, because we know that you are perfect in your relationship with us. So Father, turn us around. Help us to run the right direction on the track. Help us to overcome the temptation that so easily trips us up. Father, let us receive what you have for us so that we can grow and be the children of God that you would have for us to be. And Father, if you'll do this work in our lives, we promise to give you all the glory and the honor and the praise. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. By way of benediction this morning, I want to turn your attention to 1 John chapter 3. When uh, the Apostle John writes this, he's the last living apostle. All the other guys are gone. They're all in heaven. In fact, uh, all of them, except John, died a martyr's death. And John finds himself, if, you, if, you just, uh, if you've never read 1 John from beginning to end uh, seamlessly, without taking a break, you should do it, because then you, you kind of get it. But he finds himself talking about God's love. Uh, he, uses, he uses the word love like 45 times in five chapters. But the pinnacle of that is chapter 3 and verse 1 when he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. He's literally saying, What kind of love do we get from the Father? 
And then he answers his own question and he says, we get to be called the children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. I I think you should start making other people call you that in your life. Hey, I'm a child of God. I want to be referred to that way. And And then he uses a funny phrase, but in reality, it's a great phrase. And he says, and so we are. Because if God says it, it's true. If God says it, that settles it, it's true, and Satan can't take it away, and your emotions can't take it away, and the hostility of the world can't take it away, nothing can separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. So this morning I say to you, how much does God the Father love you? He loves you so much that you are his daughter. You are his son. And we receive his love when he treats us as father. Have a great day. God bless you. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.